Well, good morning, and happy Mother's Day again. Um, my name is Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills, and it's a blessing to be with you and share with you from my heart and from God's Word, uh, and especially on such a special occasion as Mother's Day. And so moms, on behalf of the rest of us, I won't make you stand up and embarrass you and do that whole thing, um, but we do want to say uh, thank you this morning. Thank you. At the very least, uh, you have given us the amazing gift of life, uh, and at, at most, for so many of us, I know it's true, you've served as amazing, wonderful, um, beautiful, selfless, generous, caring, encouraging, um, godly examples uh, of faith to us. Uh, in some of our cases, you're, you're the, the single greatest positive influence and role model in our lives, and so thank you. Um, now... Part of me, uh, to be honest, wishes that, uh, that I could leave it there this morning, um, that that was sort of the period at the end of the Mother's Day sentence. Um, but our senior pastor, Pastor Gary, who's out of town, he sets our preaching calendar, um, and he would like to have you believe that he's a gracious boss to me. Um, he, he has referenced that when we preached through First Peter this winter, and how he didn't uh, make me preach on the passages and Chapter two about slaves obeying their masters, or chapter three, wives being subject to their husbands, or, or even Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison in the days of Noah, that weird passage. Um, however, I'm convinced that this morning is his payback for all of that, um, because if you talk to most pastors I know, they will say Mother's Day is one of the toughest uh, Sundays to, to preach on, and it's not, I don't say that because I hate moms or something. I love moms. I love my own mom. I wish she was here with me today. I love my, my wife, my mother-in-law. Um, I, I, I love moms, and I think we should absolutely celebrate them. The reason is, is you know, Missy has already sort of brought up this morning, and, um, and I appreciate her, Missy, you sharing your heart um, and sentiment about that with us, but there's, there's actually two reasons for me that I kind of struggle with preaching about Mother's Day on Mother's Day. And the first is, is actually more of a theological one. So here at West Hills, we, we believe in expository preaching. And so typically what we do is we preach through books of the Bible at a time. Uh, and, and, and rather than picking a topic like, let's celebrate moms, and then trying to make Scripture fit that, because frankly, it, it just doesn't really. Um, not very well. If you can find me a passage... That's, that's really about patting ourselves on the back for how great we are as parents, uh, I, will, I will preach that, absolutely. But um, unfortunately for us, the Bible's almost exclusive focus is on God and on, on how he alone is the, the parent that is good. Um, and he alone is the parent that is worthy of our celebration and our praise. Um, and so, you know, you have any example of that you want to pick. Jesus in Matthew 7, one of the, being one of the best. I thought about choosing this as our text for today. Um, if you who are evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will, you, will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is not giving out any trophies for being a, a good mom and for, and for loving our kids. He, he kind of just takes for granted, you know, we're evil and we still love our kids. Like, don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not don't, don't pat yourself on the back too much about that. Um, Jesus would have written the world's worst Hallmark cards on Mother's Day. <laughs> you who are evil are good mothers. Um, and so listen, I'm not, I'm not advocating that we go 
you know, full-on Seventh-day Adventist here and boycott all holidays. I'm just saying that when it comes to our Sundays together, as a people of the book, who come here to, 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 to center on and to, and to study and to worship and to um, submit ourselves to the authority of God's word, I think we have to admit that God alone gets the glory and the honor and the celebration 52 out of 52 Sundays for us. Um, let me get some angry emails this week, but uh, that's, just, that's just biblically the way it is. Secondly, though, the, and the second reason to get to Missy's point, I think I'm really reticent about preaching about Mother's Day on Mother's Day, is because it's, it is just seemingly so perilous. You know, it's, it's sensitive, it's complicated. There are seemingly landmines everywhere. Um, we have women here this morning who will hear this Mother's Day sermon who are currently struggling with infertility, my own wife included. Um, we've been trying to get pregnant again for two years since we had Ellery. We tried for over two years before God blessed us with Ellery. And so can you imagine how difficult Mother's Day was for, for, for her during that time? Um, and some of y'all have struggled even longer with that, with fewer kids to show for it. How difficult it was for us after our miscarriage. Uh, and some of you have, have lost children. This is really hard stuff. This is hard, difficult stuff that we, that we bring into a sermon like this. We may have women here who honestly didn't want kids. And then God blessed them with kids anyways. And so maybe there's even a, a sense of guilt about that regret you know, that you bring here. Statistically speaking, we almost certainly have women here who have had an abortion. I can't imagine the emotional stuff that you bring to a sermon about Mother's Day. And so if you hear nothing else this morning, please hear me say that uh, God loves you and God offers forgiveness for the, the broken and the hurting. And West Hills, I think you will find to be a safe place uh, no matter what your story is. Um, and you're not alone. You're not, and, and we're not into stone casting here. I know we have mothers here who have uh, told me at this church that they feel like they were just plain bad at it. That they, they, maybe they made amazing lawyers or businesswomen, but put you in charge of another human being's life and their emotional and spir spiritual rearing, and you feel totally out of your league. And so maybe now your kids are grown up, and, and you're seeing them start to reap the consequences of imperfect parenting. And there's, again, there's guilt maybe about that, or shame. We've got stepmoms here. Mother-in-laws, you know, and all the not-so-funny, too-close-to-home jokes that, that accompany that special calling. We've, we've got moms, women, who, who have no interest whatsoever in kids. Some of them are married, some are single, some are younger, some want to have kids, but they want to wait. Others are older and have never felt called to that at all. Others are older, and they want to. They've never failed Mr. Right. I mean, we, not to mention the entire other half of the room here who's really here to, to pick up the bill at brunch. I mean, th there are so many people who I could forget and overlook and neglect and marginalize, not to mention shame, you know, with even the, the most well-intentioned sermon on Mother's Day. I don't want to beat you down. And so that's why I asked Pastor Gary, could I just continue our second half of Second Peter 2 this week, and he said no. So don't let him tell you that he's a merciful boss. <laughs> he's not. So after a lot of prayer and agonizing over this message, um, 
I would like us to spend our time together this morning in Titus chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, um, as you turn there, you'll notice uh, in your bulletins from the awkward title that I've given the sermon, we're actually going to take a slightly different tack uh, this morning and focus on what it means to spiritually mother, to, to mentor, as you heard it put in the video testimonials a moment ago, to disciple, to train, to guide, equip, to come alongside and support and shepherd one another's spiritual growth and sanctification. And because dads, we didn't set aside a separate Sunday for you in June, I'm just going to lump you into, you see yourself in the parenthetical there in the sermon title, um, we'll, we'll try and include everybody, the importance of spiritually fathering as well. And I hope that by doing this, you don't think that I'm trying to take anything away from the importance and, and how special it is to be called to mother and father our biological children. But I think that what we're going to see here in Titus today is that our call to spiritually parent those who are less mature in the faith is even more paramount for us as Christians because that call applies to all of us. It applies to all of us. And because that call is both to those who have their own children and to others outside the home. We're called to spiritually parent our own kids first and take care and, and manage our own households, Titus 1, first. But then because of that and as, as a training ground, we use that to, to be able to spiritually parent others. And most importantly, the call to spiritually parent isn't just about preparing another person for adulthood. It's about preparing them for eternity. And so that's where we're going to focus our attention. So would you, uh, as you're able, would you stand with me um, for the reading of God's word from Titus chapter 2? We're actually going to read the entire chapter. I'll read it for us if you would follow along. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children and be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would bless not only the reading, but the study, the interpretation, the explanation, the application of your word. 
Uh, Father, we, we don't want to be a people who uh, lead with our own agendas and priorities and, and, and topics that we approach your word with, but rather that, that just come and humbly submit ourselves to the authority of your word and, and, and wait expectantly to hear a word from you this morning. And so would you speak again, Holy Spirit, as you have through your word? And uh, would you bless us for it? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are three main points I want to pull out for us from Titus 2. The first is that grace should touch every aspect of our life. Now, it's a good thing that the gospel is so blatantly, unavoidably central and prominent in verses 11 through 14 here in Titus 2 because sometimes as a preacher, um, I can get so carried away about the things that I'm passionate about, like discipleship and mentoring for this morning, that honestly, I, I probably could have preached an entire 45-minute sermon about how we ought to teach one another and train one another and give you all these practical steps and do and do and do and do without ever once bringing it back to what has already been done for us. The person and the work of Jesus Christ. God's grace, Paul says. And thank God that Paul doesn't forget to remind us that discipleship in the absence of God's grace, if done in our own strength and our own power, is really no better than what the Pharisees were doing when Jesus addressed them in Matthew 23. And he says, look, you put all this self-effort into training up your disciples and you teach them to tie this and that, and you forget the weightier matters and you forget God's grace. And so in so doing, you make them into twice the sons of hell that you are. That's what he says. Our spiritual parenting can never be more about what we can do for one another than about what God has already done for us. That's it. So look at me, uh, with me at verse 11, if you would. Paul doesn't lead with this in verse 1. He waits till verse 11, but verses 1 through 10 are grounded in what we find in verses 11 through 14. Why are we called to teach sound doctrine? Why are we called to mentor and disciple and train and model Christ-likeness for one another? Paul says it's because of, it is for the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God brings salvation for all people. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God motivates us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present, present age. The grace of God sustains our waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of, uh, of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That grace of God that, that, that Jesus has given himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, this is the grace of God that purifies for God a people for his own possession. The grace of God compels us to be zealous for good works. It's all about the grace of God. It's all about the grace of God. See, I used to have this really dangerous um, unbiblical idea about the role that God's grace plays in Christian discipleship. I used to think that God's grace, that the gospel, Christ crucified and resurrected for the power and penalty of sin for all those who would come to him in faith. I used to think that that was kind of like the intro course to Christianity, right? And, and then when, when Paul scolds the church in Corinth for still needing spiritual milk when they should be moved on to the meat of the faith by now, I used to think that the gospel was the milk and they sh that, that we would eventually move on to a more solid food-based diet as believers and we go past the gospel. I was misreading 1 Corinthians 3 there. Grace is never just a starter course that we move on from. Grace is never an appetizer. Grace is the entire meal. 
anything that, that nourishes us, that strengthens us from God's word, that is grace. Right? Grace is never the, the 100 level prerequisite class for beginners. Grace is the school that we're enrolled in. We never graduate from Grace University as believers. It's all about grace. And notice from this text, grace is our past, our present, and our future. It touches every aspect of our lives. It's our past. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, has brought salvation. It's a perfect, completed verb tense. Whether you know the day and the time and the place of your salvation or not, if you're a regenerated, born-again believer, you have been saved for all eternity. It's done. When he said it is finished on the cross, he meant it. It's done. Past tense. And yet there's a present tense too. Grace is our present. Verse 12, it trains us currently to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions in the present age. And grace is our future too. Verse 13, as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Past, present, future, it's all grace. Now, before we move on to the application of that grace in our lives and our call to respond to that grace in tangible ways, mentoring this morning. I want to make two additional points about this grace that is meant to infuse every aspect of our lives. The first is that while God's grace is universal, his salvation is not. And this is too important for us not to pause and clarify. Look with me again at verse 11. Now here's what I'll say about this. 98% of the time, I think, roughly, uh, you don't need to know Greek to understand the New Testament. Uh, understanding the biblical languages can better inform, it can shed new light on your understanding of a particular text. In my 15 or so years of, of study, I've probably only come across at most like a half dozen passages where I would say, if you don't know the Greek here, if you're just reading most of the English translations, you, you will misunderstand what's going on in the passage. Titus 2.11 is one of those passages. All right, so I want to bring us back to the Greek for a minute. Here's what the Greek says. Epiph- uh, and I've listed it there for you, for those of you who can read Greek. Epiphane gar hekaris to theus, soterios pasin anthropois. Now, the translation hinges on the word soterios that I've underlined for you there. It's a nominative feminine singular adjective, which means it modifies the subject of the sentence, charis, grace. However, most English translations render it as if it were a neuter or masculine participle or gerund that modifies the object, the all people at the end. And so they translate, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, or even worse, saving all people. But grammatically, that is just plain wrong. It clearly should be translated, the saving grace of God has appeared to all people. Now, do you see the difference between those two? I put them both up there on the board for you. Do you see the difference? And if, and if you think I'm getting nitpicky and technical when you fell asleep, the minute I said Greek, you need to wake up because this is important. Let me show you how our, our translation informs our interpretation, informs our, our theology, informs our application. If the grace of God has already brought salvation to all people, then you and I don't need to waste our time praying or worrying about lost loved ones anymore. Terry, I'm sorry, we're gonna slash your missions team budget. We don't need, a, evangelism is pointless. It's irrelevant, at best. At worst, it's just offensive, right? Rob Bell was right after all. Love wins. No such thing as hell. Whew, we're all going to heaven. Because why bother if Jesus has already brought salvation to all people? This is the verse. This is the pivotal verse. There's not a lot of them you can even twist, but this is the pivotal one that universalists will point to and say everyone's going to heaven. That proves it. Jesus saves everyone. But that's not what the Greek says. 
The saving grace of God has appeared to all people. Think with me of the scene in Matthew 28. After Jesus is resurrected from the dead, right? And, and right before he ascends back into heaven, he's there with them on the mountain, invisible form, right in front of them. <clears throat> he lets some of them touch his nail holes and everything, right? And what does Matthew say the reaction was when they saw him? In verse 17, it says, And when they saw them, when they saw him, sorry, they worshiped, but some doubted. They're there with the resurrected Christ. They literally saw the guy bleed to death three days before, and, and now they're seeing nail holes, that, and, and they watch him go up into heaven, and some still doubted. So don't think this morning, friends, that just because the saving grace of God has appeared, that all will believe it, that all will receive it. Jesus himself says, we won't. Not everyone will. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so we keep praying and loving and sharing. Evangelical Christians. The second point about the grace of God here is that not only is grace the context for any mentoring that we're called to do in the passage, but it's also the content of that, of, of that discipling. Grace is the content. A deeper, richer understanding of and appreciation for God's grace is actually the key to all of our Christian growth and sanctification. The goal is to get God's grace to sink down deeper and deeper and into the, the deepest parts of our hearts and our souls. Not just every aspect of our lives, on the surface of every, every fiber of our beings. And that requires understanding. Understanding, we need over time to grasp more and more just how big and all encompassing and transformative God's grace is. And hence, Paul's emphasis on teaching and knowledge and doctrine here in Titus. Look with me just at, at, at these couple passages from Titus alone. If we go back to chapter one, he starts off by saying, This is the reason I'm writing this book. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, our belief informs our behavior. If we get the right knowledge of the truth inside us, it will accord with, it will translate into our godliness, our works, our, our behavior. Verse 3, God has manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. Preaching, it's the center of what we do as an expo expositional church, right? That's why I get 45 minutes and Scott gets 30 Sorry, it's not to say that I'm better than him. It's just to say that the word, like this is why we're here. This is why we're here this morning. We're not here to do anything other than primarily learn and, and, and come to know God more through a better understanding of his word. Yes, we worship, we love, and we respond and, and worship. But if that's not informed by our knowledge of who God is, as he's revealed himself to us, they were misguided. Verse 9, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's one of the most crucial qualifications for leadership in the church. And by contrast, in verse 11, Paul says false teachers are upsetting whole families. How? By teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And then here in chapter 2, 
Verse one, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verses three and four, teach what is good and train the young women. Verse seven, in your teaching show integrity. Verse 10, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke them. And then in chapter three, verse 14, Paul says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Learning, teaching, knowledge. Why? Why is Paul so obsessed with doctrine and preaching and truth? Because he knows that if we get that right, if we get our belief right, if we get the true understanding of a true gospel deep inside us, then our obedience will naturally follow. All our behavior is predicated on, it's, it's directly dictated by our belief. You want to know what I believe? Just, I di- just look at how I behave. And if you want to know based on how I'm behaving, like you can, you just walk upstream from, from, why did I just say that? Like I, why did I get so upset when, when he, he, he said that, right? Why, all you have to do is walk back from your behavior and how I responded to what I actually believe about whatever the case may be. And so Paul gets this. If we get our belief straight, we grasp the grace of God, it's relevance not just for my eternal destination, but for every aspect of my life, all ungodliness and worldly passions in the present age, our behavior will follow. Belief always drives behavior. Too often we attempt, when we do do discipleship, we attempt uh, to, to, to look at, you know, we, we, we forget this and we focus on the behavior Are you reading your Bible enough? Are you praying enough? Did you read the chapter that we were supposed to do for our women's study this week? And and, and we focus on the behavior. And that's not not to say that there's not something good and and right about spiritual disciplines. But but, but if we think that we we can just have this checklist and if we check all the boxes, we can guarantee spiritual growth and sanctification and we're focusing primarily on the behavior you need to be really careful that you're, you're not just growing artificial fruit in a Petri dish. Instead of, as God, as, as Jesus says, invest in the quality of the seed that you're planting and then prayerfully let that seed naturally do what healthy seeds do. If you are growing in, in your knowledge and understanding of the grace of God, the gospel, I mean, sure, you, you still need to water it, as you're mentoring, you still need to, to, to make sure it gets plenty of sunlight and the right conditions for growth, but God has to give that growth in the first place, and it's in the nature of the seed to grow. The biblical, holistic gospel, God wants his grace, his gospel, to go out to all the world. And so if that's the seed you're planting, it will grow. Jesus says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Right, right belief produces right behavior. And so Paul says this, I think, in one of the the most beautiful articulations of the gospel in the whole New Testament, which uh, Scott actually, we didn't even sync this up, but Scott actually used for our assurance of pardon this morning. Hear it again. This is too good not to, not to just say again in Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves who were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's beautiful. Man, if we could just 
sit in that good gospel truth for a while. But then what does Paul say immediately in the next verse? The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. If we get belief right, the gospel, it will affect our behavior, not just our eternal salvation, our behavior in the here and now. And so, so that we have an accurate description of how that happens, what that looks like. Right, what does it look like, the, the fruit of the Spirit as, as it grows? Paul doesn't leave us in the dark about what it practically ought to look like for grace to take root and sink deeper into the, the marrow of our, our bones and our souls. He shows us this is what it looks like for grace to touch and transform every aspect of life in point number two. Point number two is grace should touch every station of life. Grace at work in our lives look different based on who you are. Grace for every type of person, not just grace in every aspect of my life, personally, individually, grace for every type of person. And so it looks different. The way that God's grace redemptively shapes and changes us will vary based on your station, your position, your specific calling in life. We could talk about Paul doesn't list all these other categories, but we could even go through what does that look like for you as, you know, a, 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 as a doctor, as a, a janitor, as a, you know, go down the list, right? And, and, and how grace specifically shapes. But the categories that Paul does give us here are important ones. They're unique. Look at verses 2 through 10. He, he differentiates the specific effects of grace in a believer's life based on three criteria. Their age, their gender, and their social status, their occupational status. He addresses in order older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then bond servants. And if we don't account for this in our discipleship of one another, we will not get the fullest, most robust, most biblical picture that God wants for us. That means that there is, by definition, only so much discipling that can happen on Sunday mornings. So again, if, if this is your only discipleship through the week, it's coming here and listening to the preaching, the teaching of God's word. That's good. That's really good. But it's not enough because I can't go through and individually address, you know, personally for you. How, how are you doing with integrity and dignity and your soundness of speech? There's too many of y'all. I mean, you know, that, that, that is too big of a calling, right? But Gary can with the three guys he personally invests in every week that, that you heard Andrew reference in the video, right? Those kinds of relationships and mentoring, that's what Paul is calling us to here. And so for that reason, even though expositionally, I should probably go through each one of these points and expound on what it means for an older man or, or a younger woman or a bondservant to be sober-minded and dignified or to be reverent in behavior and not a slanderer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even though I should do that, I'm not gonna do that for three reasons. First of all, I wanna get you out in time for brunch. Second of all, uh, verses three through four say the older women should be the ones to do that for the younger women, right? Paul specifically says, and so likewise for the men. In verses six through eight, Titus is told to teach and model for these younger men, not just preaching at them, but mentoring, life-on-life life mentoring. And so in keeping with the theme of this morning's message, I'm actually gonna intentionally hold off on trying to walk through and t t tell you, explicate this is exactly what it means in this category, in this category, in this category. Because when it comes to maturing as a godly woman, no amount of biblical study or seminary training could ever prepare me to prepare you for that 
as much as the real life experience of a Jenny Brooks or a Barbara Underwood or you know, so many of you here. So I'm gonna let them handle the mentoring and the application. Go to them you know, and, and, and do that. And the third reason that I'm actually not gonna try and exposit on Paul's five categories here, and I don't wanna harp on this too long, but I honestly wonder if today we have um, deconstructed those categories that Paul takes for granted, if we've deconstructed them to such an extent in our world today that they're in danger of losing all meaning altogether. Like, before we can even broach Paul's description of what it looks like for grace to touch every aspect of an older woman's life or a younger man's life or fill in the blank, like, we've first got to answer, does it even mean anything anymore to be a man or a woman or a, you know, fill in the blank? Because in the last 50 years with the rise of postmodernism, which called into question all objective truth, coupled with the rise of feminism, which called into question whether separate but equal could truly be equal when it came to women's rights, we're now in a place where I have to wonder if these five minutes that I have for point number two is better used to actually back up and just try and remind us that biblically, whether our society at large recognizes it or not anymore, and in the, in the streams that we swim in, in our culture, whether or not that... Uh, is so inculcated in our minds anymore or not that, that, that biblically it means something to be a man. It means something to be a woman. That when God created us in his image in Genesis 1, he specifically goes out of his way to let us know that he has made us unique and distinct from one another. So God created a man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is a masculine image of God. There's a feminine image of God that you and I are called to image, to mirror, to model to the world, respectively. And they are distinct from one another. And that's a good thing. That is God's design. Now, what it means for us to be a man or a woman, again, I'm going to leave that up to you in your mentoring. Paul gets into it here in Titus 2. This should be a key passage for you in figuring that out. But I would simply recommend uh, in passing a book to you, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. An excellent, thorough treatment of, of this issue and what it means to be a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, biblically. I've got it in my office if you want to borrow my copy. Uh, but Christians, we, we must think through and have answers to these questions. Paul had an answer. Titus 2 is his answer. I will tell you, our, our culture at large today does not have an answer. Ask, I mean, go ask 10 people in your office on the street, what does it mean to be a man? And just listen to the, the, the answers you get. I will tell you, our youth group does not have the answers. I know, because I asked them this past week. We're in a series on apologetics, and we're wrapping it up uh, in this spring semester, talking about Christianity's allegedly backwards and oppressive sexual and gender ethics. And so I asked them, you tell me, Christian, what does it mean to be a man then? What does it mean to be a woman? I was very hostile with them. Just to, you know. and, and, and We do a lot of role play. And the, the answers that, that they gave or didn't give, I would tell you, I, think, I, I wish I had videoed it and showed it to you because I think I might have been able to double our volunteer base for the youth group from one to two because I think somebody here, that's not really that funny, somebody here, one person would have been so heartbroken over the chaos and the confusion that our young people today are being raised in, the world that they live in having to, to deal with and try and parse through these mixed messages. If somebody would, would say, that's not right. These kids need, need answers. 
If you want a ready-made, desperately needed place to mentor, come find me and I'll, I'll plug you in with the youth group. Um, I don't, you know, I say I don't want to harp on this too much because I really don't think that it historically has done us a lot of good as believers to just rail against the culture. I mean, it doesn't seem to be working that well for us. Um, and so I, I wonder if maybe the most effective thing that we can actually do is to simply grow in our own understanding of and appreciation for what it means to be a man, a woman after God's own heart, that God has uniquely made us different for a purpose and to learn to live into that purpose and to model that for the world and the joys of that, of God's perfect design for sex, for gender, for marriage, for identity. Because inevitably, here's the thing, inevitably, you, our unbelieving friends, they can, you can only go so far down the rabbit trail, of, uh, tr- rabbit trail of postmodernism before you, you get so jaded and disoriented and, and just utterly divorced from reality and hopelessly lost and discombobulated and desperately in need and searching for some sort of absolute, some sort of firm foundation that I can stake my life on And we need to be ready to point them to the truth of the gospel and God's word as the only foundation that is worth building your life on in a world of sinking sand. Amen? I love how David puts it in Psalm 16, 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. God puts boundaries around these things. Sexuality, gender, race, identity. And they're pleasant they're for our good. They're for clarity. They're for understanding. They're for, they're for flourishing, human flourishing and joy and celebration. Let's celebrate them. I'll just end with one example here. Darlene, uh, Sierra, Kiona, Clarence, Jackie, how would y'all feel if I um, got up here and told you that I was colorblind and that I don't see black or white. I don't see you, you guys as black. I don't see me as white. That actually, I just think race is just a made-up social construct uh, of our imaginations. And it's really no different to be, Jackie's shaking his head already. There, it's no different to be black or white in the world. It's, it's all the same. All right, how would you feel? Jackie shook his head. They're not throwing stones at me, but they don't have stones. So <laughs> you, would feel, you would feel like your, your experience of yourself and the world, a, a valuable part of how God made you specifically, right, uniquely, has been devalued, right? I mean, to, to try and appreciate uh, who God has made you to be, that's not how you do it. We can't celebrate diversity if we pretend like it doesn't exist. Is that right? And we can't celebrate diversity of, of men and women and if we pretend these, these categories don't exist or they don't mean anything. And so praise God for creating us perfectly and uniquely in his image, male and female in his image. Point number three. Lastly, because God's grace has sunk in deeply and has begun to touch every aspect of our lives and because grace is transforming us more and more into a man or a woman after God's own heart, as we start to see his heart for others, then his grace should necessarily begin to touch every relationship in our lives as well. His grace affects our relationships, and specifically, as we've traced the theme all throughout, 
His grace beckons us into these intimate, life-changing, sanctifying, iron-sharpening iron, Proverbs 27, 17 type relationships with one another. Mentoring, discipleship, spiritual parenting, however you want to call it, arose by any other name. This is what we're being called to here in Titus 2. We see it back in chapter 1 even. Paul and Titus, look at their relationship. They practice what they preach. They model this for us. Paul addresses Titus in chapter 1, uh, verse five, as my, or verse 4, my true child in a common faith. Titus is his spiritual son. And when Paul reminds Titus why he left him in Crete in the first place, to appoint elders in every town to serve as the spiritual fathers. Elders are to serve as spiritual parents and fathers to the churches that they oversee. And of course, here in chapter two, as we've already examined this morning, older women are the ones that train up the younger. And so I want to end this way. I just want to ask you, how many of you uh, this morning, how many of you are currently either mentoring or being mentored by someone else in the faith uh, for the explicit purpose of growing in God's grace? I'm not talking about, um, I invited my neighbor to church with me on Easter. That's great. Uh, But I'm talking about an intentional, regular, committed investment of time and energy in the life of another person, either as their mentor or as their mentee, for the express purpose of growing in God's grace. How many people? I mean, just literally show of hands. Okay. I don't ask the question, the spirit of condemnation, nothing like that. Here's where we're going. Here's the more important question. How many of you feel, and I'll ask you to raise your hand. This is not an altar call, like come forward and whatever. Uh, This is just discipleship, mentorship, God's word. It's calling us to it. How many of you feel a nudge this morning and you suspect that it might not just be Pastor Will's persuasiveness, because I'm not that persuasive, but, but it actually may be the Holy Spirit speaking through God's word in Titus 2, or maybe it's God's timing syncing up with, with someone that God has been placing on your heart to minister to recently, or someone, uh, a need in your own life, that you say, man, I just think God is calling me to address that, and I need help, I need guidance, I need discipling in that. How many of you would say, you know, I think that God might be convicting me this morning that I need to stop making excuses, that I'm not good enough to mentor someone else, because go back to point number one, you're not. You're not good enough to, none of us are. But God's goodness, right? Our our mentoring is not based on our goodness. It's based on his goodness and the grace of God, right? That's what it is. Or or stop making excuses about I'm too busy or I don't know the right person to mentor me, whatever it is for you, uh, and and I need to make this a priority in my life. How many of y'all feel like that, that may be something that God has for you this morning? Okay, great, that's awesome. And, And if you didn't have your hand up, maybe it's because you had your hand up for the first one. Maybe it's because you're, you're newer to the faith and you're, you're still so new that like you're still feeling this out. And like, this is enough for you right now. That's good. Keep coming and do this. And over time, we'll plug you into those kinds of opportunities and relationships. Maybe you're here because you got drugged here by your mom. And this is your only Sunday in church all year or whatever. And um, you checked out mentally when we read verse five at the beginning about uh, wives are supposed to work in the home and submit to their husbands. And that's fine too. And we are glad you're here. We, 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 we try to be a church that, that preaches expositorily and that, and that goes to the depth and the, the meat of God's word, uh, but that also uh, appreciates the fact that, hey, we've got people all over the spectrum here. We love that you're here. But for those of you uh, who raised your hand, actually, raise your hand one more time for me. And look around. If you've got your hand up, just look around. 
if you would say, yeah, I feel the nudge, like God wants to use me or God wants to use someone else in my life. Okay, look around. Look around. The people with their hands up right now, these are the people you want to find in, in, the, in the, uh, the foyer after the service today. I mean, seriously, like brunch can wait. Um, hopefully you made a reservation. This is too important. Like, this is too important. Remember, Jesus said you won't live on uh, bread alone anyways, right? This is your, your spiritual you know, work, right? We've we got to prioritize this. And so find those people, and, and let's start to form those relationships, all right? And, and um, the last pitch I'll give you, I can't let you leave without plugging two specific outlets here at West Hills that we have for this, these kinds of relationships, discipleship, mentoring. One is our life groups. One is our life groups, um, the relational hub of our church. One of the best ways to identify and then naturally, organically grow in these types of relationships that God calls us to is through your life group. Real life issues get voiced during prayer requests, during discussion time, even just during fellowship time over dinner. The opportunity to get close enough to one another to see the way that we parent, to see the way that we communicate in our marriages. And, and we've got to be able to take those opportunities and be humble enough to say, hey, you know, I, I see what, what you guys have there. I want a, a marriage like you guys. Would you, would you, could we have y'all over for dinner and just kind of do some two-on-two like mentoring? Or you know, We've got to be humble enough to pursue those kinds of relationships. The other outlet I want to mention specifically this morning is our men's and our women's ministries. You heard Andrew's story um, during the videos. Pastor Gary started a men's discipleship training program about two years ago now that he took all of our elders through. And then our elders turned around and, 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 and walked through with younger men, three or four guys at a time, that they would train and they would mentor. I think this is exactly the kind of thing that Paul is envisioning in Titus 2. And we're doing it here, and it's exciting, and it's perfect timing because these groups are just actually wrapping up version 1.0, and so they're starting to look for new people to, to take under their wing. This is good time. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Gary. You heard uh, Sally and Jody's um, examples with, uh, with the people that have mentored them in, in the old women's ministry. Well, guess what? Perfect timing again. Just in the past month, we've had a, a group of women who have stepped up and, and been like, why do we stop doing that? We should do that again. We're like, yeah, you should. Let's do it. Let's go, go for it. Um, and so they're working, currently working towards and preparing, resurrecting that program, new and improved. Um, and so if you have questions about that, talk to Kelly Hinderlong. Kelly, will you raise your hand? Kelly, back there. Talk to her. Okay. But let me leave you with this. Because, God, uh, because Paul tells, uh, tells me and tells us in verse 15, he says, Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. So let me just exhort you, a word of exhortation as we go out. Moms, the call to motherhood is absolutely one of the most beautiful, celebration-worthy, important, specific roles you, that, you, that you will ever play in your life for someone. Dads, so is the call to fatherhood for you. But Christians, let's don't miss the calling that we have all received and the wonderful opportunities that God provides all around us to spiritually parent or be parented by others and to grow in God's grace together and impact one another, not just to be raised to adulthood, but with eternal rewards. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for moms. We thank you I thank you for my mom and for the wonderful, godly example of 
love and selfless care and concern, generosity that she's been to me. Thank you for my, my wife, my mother-in-law, the joy of getting to watch them mother well too, and for all the women here who have served in that role to their own biological children and mothered. I pray for our mothers. I pray for our fathers. Father, I pray for us as as spiritual parents this morning. Father, would you give us a vision for parenting that goes beyond the walls of our own home, that starts there, that we would start there and learn to manage and love and train up our own household well, but that we could do that as, as a as a way to serve you, spiritually parent, and then to take that and the the lessons that we learn there and invest those in other parents and other non-parents. We all have room to grow in our faith. Would you help us have the courage to take that next step? To find someone who we can say, hey, I see your life and I see the way God's sunk his grace deeper into into your life. I want to be the kind of mom, I want to be the kind of dad, I want to be the kind of the kind of husband, the kind of wife, the kind of single person, the kind of businessman, the kind of person, Christian believer that you are. Would you mentor me? That we would be able to recognize with humility but with boldness By God's grace, by your grace, you've grown some of us to a point where, hey, we can we really have something to offer others, and we want to do that. We believe that's your design, Father, to use our our lateral person-to-person relationships to inform and influence and impact our vertical relationship with you. Father, I thank you for all those who have served in that capacity for me. I think of John Jenkins, Keith, but my youth pastor. Stuart Fuller, I could go on and on and I just name them and because I love them. And I hope it, it spurs all of us here to think about the people that have played that role in our life and name them and be thankful for them this morning. Reach out to them, say, Happy Mother's Day. Thank you for spiritually mothering me, for spiritually fathering me. Father, we thank you most of all for your grace, your mercy your loving kindness, that you are a good father who loves us and that your love for us is a sure foundation, the only foundation worth building our lives on in a world of otherwise sinking sand. It's in Jesus' name we pray.